0: Our laws uh, around convictions and sentences for criminals uh, have no place for punishment. I was talking to Heidi last week uh, after the church lunch, after Sunday, and, and she told me that New Zealand Sentencing Act uh, makes no provision for punishment. So I went online and I had a look at the act and here is it, I've given it the, sort of the preacher's alliteration feel, but here's where the emphasis lands. Uh, it puts the emphasis on restitution, that is, paying some kind of compensation to the victim. Uh, rehabilitation, that is, kind of retraining people so that they won't re-offend. Uh, repression, that is, it's designed to discourage and deter other people from committing the same crimes. Restrictions, uh, that is, keeping the community safe by putting people in home detention or in prison. But there's no place for retribution, that is punishment, a penalty inflicted for disobedience, for being guilty. And the sentencing laws uh, in our country are that way on purpose. Uh, they reflect the reigning social policy, they reflect the way that our society fundamentally sees people. Our culture, deep down, believes that people are good and the reason that some might do bad things is because, well, they're socially disadvantaged or psychologically disordered. But placed in the right social engineering situation, we can get these good people, well, these fundamentally good people, good again. We can undo the bad. We can change them because deep down they're really good. Now, our, our criminal justice system might be orientated by our culture towards reforming offenders but at the same time our society does want some kind of retribution 1999 Kiwis participated in a justice referendum over 90% of New Zealanders voted for something like tougher sentences because in their their mind it wasn't rehabilitation that they wanted it was retribution See, our society is sort of conflicted we, we see the inequities uh, that shape our country and our justice system. Poverty and race distort justice in our country. And we want to change and reform and repair. We want to sort of re- rehabilitate people because it's not fair what's happening. But we also see the apparent, apparent injustices... As, as victims suffer through the court processes, and then the outcomes and the sentences don't seem to match the, the grievous wrongs that are done to them. It's just not fair. Now, when we come to the Bible, we bring that conflicted approach with us. When we look at God's judgment, as we see it here in Revelation, it, it just seems so harsh and brutal and unfair and at the same time the world looks at the forgiveness of god received by some people you know wicked people bad people people like you and me uh, we put our hope in the justice of god experienced by jesus on the cross and we find ourselves forgiven and given a fresh start and the world thinks that's unfair the judgment in these chapters is not rehabilitation it's retribution. A retribution is giving people what they deserve, giving people punishment for their wrong actions. Giving people what they deserve, no more, no less. The punishment must fit the crime. The trouble with retribution is you've got to believe that people deserve things. You've got to believe that there is a right and a wrong. You've got to believe that the wrong is an absolute wrong. That's fair. That's just. Our justice system has no place for retribution because it fundamentally misunderstands what it means to be human. There's no concept of sin at work in people's lives. Now, if we lived in a society where, where people understood and accepted the reality of sin at work in the world and sin at work in me, then we wouldn't be thinking about rehabilitation to the exclusion of retribution. See, a proper understanding of sin at work in everyone's life means we would have a place for both retribution and rehabilitation. Now, please don't limit your thinking uh, on this matter of justice, of rehabilitation and retribution to sort of abstract government ideology. These issues are worked out in families around New Zealand every day. In our homes there is a whole justice system being enacted, albeit on a much smaller scale. What is the right way to discipline or punish children? I'm not talking about smacking or not smacking. No, no, something much more important than that. I'm talking about the framework of justice we are teaching our children. The way that justice is modelled in our homes. See, we should be looking to the true judge if we want to teach our children true justice our aim is to model for them godly justice we, we want to help them learn the difference between justice and injustice to, to value and respect justice and treat others justly but also to to confront and oppose injustice it's a very significant contribution we can make to these young lives and tomorrow's society. And if we want to learn about God's justice, then the book of Revelation is an excellent place to start. It's not everything about God's justice, but it does have some important components to it. Uh, in chapters 15 and 16 that we're looking at today, we see God's justice, God's anger, God's wrath, God's retribution being meted out for the sins of this world. And God's justice is not arbitrary or fickle or random or erratic. God's justice happens exactly as he said it would according to his declared laws. God's justice happens to, uh, in order to vindicate his martyred people, God's justice happens because the guilty persist in their willful defiance. One of the great themes of this book and of our section today is that God will not allow the persecution of his church and the rejection of his rightful rule to continue forever. Evil will not triumph. And I've uh, sort of divided our passage into, into four sections, structured it this way, uh, five judgments inflicted, two challenges to our understanding of judgment, uh, two scenes of the end, and two confronting applications. So not a very memorable structure, but anyway, we'll work through. Uh, five judgments inflicted. Uh, let's look at it together. Uh, this is the third and final series of seven judgments. Uh, we had the opening seven seals, uh, each of which locked up uh, the scroll of destiny, so to speak, in chapter 6, and we had the, the seven trumpets sounding. Uh, in chapters 8 and 9, each one announcing a judgment. And now we have the sort of pouring out of seven bowls, each one sending a plague on the earth here in chapter 16. And as I've tried to show as we've gone through this book of Revelation so far, I don't think we have a series of 21 separate judgments happening in a long sequence. Uh, look, Really, I think it's just... A, a repetition. We, we sort of begin here, we have these sequence of judgments, we come to the end and then we get another sequence of judgments. We begin again and we start all over. And we, we go through these cycles of judgments, looking at God's judgment coming on the world, but, but from different angles, from different perspectives, from different views as we view that judgment. We have cycle after cycle, a, a series of judgments being reenacted and then culminating in the final event, God's people in heaven singing and rejoicing or ultimate judgment being imposed on the ungodly. So that the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls are each fundamentally describing the same reality of judgment, but, but showing that reality from three different perspectives, three different viewpoints. Well, what's the particular perspective in the seven bowls? Well, here is a display of God's judgment being experienced in a world where the dragon and the beasts are also in view. Those satanic characters were there in the world when we looked at the seven seals and the seven trumpets, but they just weren't featured, that the focus was elsewhere. But as we look at the seven bowls and the corresponding plagues being poured out, we're now looking at judgment coming on a world where demonic forces are at work. And with the seven bowls, we've come to the climactic series of seven. We didn't read it, but if you look back to chapter 15, verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And then when we come to the seventh angel, uh, we get this description, chapter 16, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Now we have this sort of climactic bookends around this series of seven. Last plagues, God's wrath completed, and it is done. Uh, whereas the judgments of the seven seals and the seven trumpets were in some way partial, when we, we looked at them we could see, oh, some of them affected just a quarter of the world or just a third of the environment. Not so with the bowls. With the bowls, the judgments are widespread. they're comprehensive, without limits. It's all part of this climactic series of judgments. Now the plagues poured out in the bowls parallel the seven trumpets, which are themselves uh, drawing on the plagues that Moses brought out of Egypt, brought on Egypt in order to see God's people freed. Uh, like the trumpets, the first four bowls target the earth, the sea, the rivers and the springs, and the sun. But whereas the, the trumpets sort of put the focus more on what happened to the environment, the bowls that we're reading about this morning put the impact on the people. Verse 2, chapter 16, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Widespread disease inflicted on humanity that is in league with the beastly powers. It's followed by ecological disaster, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of waters and they became blood. So the seas and the rivers like blood and everything in them dies. And then we get the commentary of heaven on these plagues, verse 5. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one. You who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you've given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Justice for Christian believers who've been killed and martyred is the death of those who killed them. This is God's retribution brought to bear on the perpetrators who've persecuted his people, blood for blood. And we're told twice God is just in these judgments. True and just are your judgments. Then, with the fourth angel, we have a kind of global warming. Not caused, it's not man-made, it's God-given. It's not carbon emissions, it's divine judgment. Verse 8, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. Uh, that's followed by an opposite judgment. Darkness, verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. And the sixth angel brought a severe drought. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its waters were dry, was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now the marks of God's judgment here are a kind of deliberate echo but not an exact copy of the judgments we find inflicted on Egypt and Pharaoh at the time of Exodus. And these judgments are also similar to the judgments we saw in the seven trumpets in chapter 8 and 9. The, the, these also match the seals and the four horsemen of chapter 6. The same kinds of things are repeated over and over again. Disease, disaster, heat darkness drought these are the five things that are shown here to inflicted through the judgment of god but but two challenges to our understanding here about god's judgment let me make two observations about the way that god works in judgment on the world the first is that the wrath of god is directed towards our environment i mean god's judgment against the world is frequently described and ongoing and environmental. As you remember, Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have sinned. What's one of the consequences? Cursed is the ground because of you. Or Israel. Repeatedly, uh, they are warned. The land will not bear crops. The vines will not bear fruit because you are rejecting the Lord your God. Judgment will come on them agriculturally. Well, Romans chapter 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present, waiting for the children of God to be revealed. Or well, Jesus in Matthew 24, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of the birth pains of the end. God's judgment isn't, isn't to be measured out in kind of direct proportion to individual wickedness in this or that nation. They had an earthquake. They must be really bad. They had a tsunami. They must be worse. We didn't have anything. We must be good. No, no, no. Rejection of God as a creator and persecution of, of his people results in God's wrath being directed towards the environment in which we live in the kinds of ways that we see through these six angels. disease. Ecological disaster, heat, a kind of global warming, darkness, drought. And do see that these judgments are not man-made. They are God-given. Oh, can human beings stuff up the environment? Absolutely we can. But we shouldn't shrink the judgment of God to merely bad consequences of human folly. No, God sends his judgments purposefully. He executes his judgments deliberately. Now, we can't particularise God's judgment on, on some because they suffer disease or disaster or drought. It's just an expression of judgment on them. Uh, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus posed a question about the people on whom the tower of Siloam had fallen and killed. It's a building. It fell on some people and they died. And Jesus asked the question, are they more sinful than anybody else because the tower fell on them, that they were killed. He says, no, 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 no. You're all, we're all just as sinful as they were. So we should all repent and get ready for our judgment. See, if that's what God could do to them in an instant, you'd be better, better be ready to meet God in an instant as well. The disaster of the tower falling on them was the end for them but for us, it's a warning. Disease, disaster, drought, it can come on any one of us. The world that we live in is not a comfortable place. And God's deliberately made it so. Of course, it's a wonderful world that God has made. He created a good world for our enjoyment. But as a result of human rebellion against him, he has made our world uncomfortable and uneasy. For he is angry at the world's murder of his son and the persecution of his people. So judgment comes on the world to make us uncomfortable. Uh, secondly, observe about God's judgment. It's there in verses 9 and 11. Uh, they refuse to repent and glorify him. Our uh, People, verse 11, curse the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refuse to repent of what they had done. Do the disasters and the catastrophes, do the disappointments and sadnesses of life, do they cause a significant number of people to turn back to God? No, they don't. Uh, immediately after the 9-11 attacks in New York, there was a surge in religion. Churches, synagogues, other spiritual centres were packed with 25% more people. But that attendance subsided within a few weeks. Given all that's happening in our world right now, wars in Ukraine, Gaza, uh, nearly 7 million dead through a global pandemic, floods and earthquakes, poverty, a cost of living crisis, any number of other tragedies or ghastly things going on in the world, are we seeing a significant turning back to God? Answer no. No. The groaning of this creation ought to cause our family and our friends to turn back to God. But it seems that, according to God's word, many will not repent and glorify God, refusing to repent of what they've done. The experience of judgment may well be recognised as coming from God. It may well be extremely unpleasant and, un- and painful, but people would rather curse God than repent. As I said last week, we're thinking about the nature of hell uh, and its eternal nature. Even suffering God's judgment here, people will curse God and defy his rule. They will continue to sin. I think that's why hell carries on. Two things to think about God's judgment on the environment it doesn't necessarily provoke people to return. When we looked at the series of seals being opened and trumpets being sounded, the, the first judgments in each of those series could be realistically seen to be at work in our world now. We see disease and disaster and drought and so on. The Apostle Paul tells the Roman Church that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of the world. God's judgments are already being experienced in our world and they, they look like the first five seals, the first five trumpets, and the first five bowls. Which brings us to the two scenes of the end. See, we are waiting for the final judgment to come. Uh, the sixth seal brings ultimate punishment and the seventh seal brings heaven. The sixth trumpet brings ultimate punishment and the seventh trumpet brings heaven. And if we're following the same pattern, the sixth bowl would bring ultimate judgment and the seventh bowl, heaven. But that's not what happens. The sixth bowl just sets the scene for ultimate judgment. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Parallels the Sixth Trumpet with its description of a great army crossing the Euphrates River. It's symbolic language. Where do the great armies come from in the Old Testament? From the east, from beyond the great river. That's where the Assyrians and the Babylonians came from who conquered and defeated Israel. So symbolically, that's where the enemies of God's people will come from. Verse 13, then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They come into the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And then verse 16, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now here we have the dragon representing uh, Satan, chapter 12, uh, the first beast that came out of the sea, representing anti-Christian kingdoms or rulers, chapter 13, and the false prophet who is the beast of the land, a different name, but ultimately Satan's PR agent. And out of the mouths of these three come frog-like spirits who summon the kings and rulers of the nations to the place called Armageddon. Uh, here's a name that people who know nothing about the Bible will know. Uh, here's a name almost as famous as the number 666. What is Armageddon? It's just a symbolic reference, like we've seen in so many, in so many other references. Now, Armageddon literally means the Mount of Megiddo. Uh, there's a, it's the vicinity where, where Deborah and Barak defeated the Israelites in Judges 5. Israel's enemies, sorry. It's a, it's a vicinity connected with battles. But John isn't pointing us to a particular plot of land. I do see that the, the, the kings called to assemble come from the whole world and they gather for battle on the great day of God Almighty. This is an end of the world battle. When the Lord Jesus returns in glory and power to judge the world. This is the answer to the question of Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Why is it that in every generation of humanity we find kings and rulers assembling themselves against the perfect and beautiful rule of Jesus? It's true in the 1st century. 1st uh, century Rome with oppressive emperors. Uh, 16th century Rome, popes killing off Protestants. Or the 20th century with Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or the 21st century with ISIS or militant secularists. Why is it that the rulers of this world gather against King Jesus? Well, because in every age there are frog-like demonic spirits stirring up rebellion against the Lord Jesus. Now, History may uh, give us some precursors, some forerunners to the final battle of Armageddon. But the final battle scene. John holds off. He doesn't give it to us. You have to come back later when we look at chapter 19. End of chapter 19. That's where John gives us the battle. It's, it's very boring. The Lord Jesus comes and wins. That's it. There's the short version. All the drama. Yeah, he just comes and wins. That's it. But John saves that for later. Uh, that's not now. Uh, John wants us though to grasp the full cycle of judgment being completed and so the seventh angel poured out his bowl. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying it's done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it had ever occurred since mankind had been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three. The cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 40 kilograms, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Uh, we have again a scene of the final judgment being played out uh, and there's elements there that are said to be done but, but we're going to hear about them uh, in chapter 17 and 18 that's when Babylon the great will be destroyed but it's all said to have happened here and what we have here at the end ch- chapter 16 of the, the seven uh, bowls is, is almost the same as the seven the seventh uh, sorry the sixth seal massive earthquakes in both Islands and mountains fleeing away. In chapter 6, people call for rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, here in chapter 16, huge rocks fall on people and they curse God. And We've been taken through a cycle of seven climactic judgments, more comprehensive, more severe than the previous cycles of seven, but we've ended up in the same place. Ultimate judgment has come on the world. I'll picture it in catastrophic destruction in, in cities and people. In the chapters to come, I will again see the judgment of God and the, the vindication of God's people from fresh perspectives. We'll come back to those early next year, as I've said. But as we, we finish up this morning, uh, what are we to do with this passage describing God's judgment? So I just want to finish with two, two confronting applications. Uh, firstly... All that we've read here is is not new truth. This is old truth set before us in an engaging way to grab our hearts and emotions. There's something comforting, but there's also something terrifying about the judgments of God. Oh, something comforting for oppressed and persecuted believers, God's true and just judgment will come. The wrongs of this life will be put right, Christians will be vindicated on the last day. Something terrifying for the people we dearly love and care about who keep pushing away the Lord Jesus and the gospel of forgiveness. This is not some science fiction comic book. This is a graphic presentation of the real judgment that God will bring. It should be both comforting to a certain degree, terrifying. I uh, secondly do see the application for us in verse 15. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. It's, it's the image of a soldier ready for battle or a watchman keeping guard over their house. Uh, they've got to be dressed and ready. The soldier standing guard, but... Not in his combat gear. No weapon. It's well, useless. The watchman tucked up in bed in his PJs. No good at all when the burglar comes. In light of this intense battle scene against satanic forces with all the world's kingdoms and rulers marshaled against God's people, the call from the Lord Jesus is for believers to stay awake and alert, and dressed, ready for action. It's an application that ties us right back to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. As Sardis had the reputation for being alive but were falling asleep on the job and, and they're urged to wake up. Now The church in Philadelphia encouraged to hold on to what they had so that their victory isn't stolen away. Oh, Laodicea, they'd grown lukewarm and Jesus counsels this church to, to be dressed in white garments so they might be clothed and not naked. God will not allow the persecution of his church and the rejection of his rightful rule to continue forever. All around us are the birth pains of God's judgment on the environment and our, a demonstration of our inability to be at peace in this world. Everywhere we look we see the creation groaning, creation under the curse of God. But God will bring his true and just judgment on the world ultimately and finally. And While we wait for that day, we just stay awake, dressed, ready for the coming of Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to give you praise and thanks for you are just in your judgments. Help us to learn about your justice, to know what true justice is, and to live rejoicing in that and to long for that to be seen in our society and worked out in our families and our friendships but also give us hope and perseverance in an unjust world while we wait for your justice. Keep us ready for that great day of the coming of the Lord Jesus so we will be dressed and ready giving praise and thanks until that day. Amen.